Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part two of our discussion of stolen heads and stolen brains. That's right. If you didn't listen to part one, go back, listen to part one, uh, because uh, that's where we initially get into it. And we talk about like some ancient ideas about what the brain did. And uh, then we get into some examples of of um, brains that have been preserved uh, consensually and then get a little bit into the theft. And we're going to get more into the theft here in this episode. And then towards the end, we're going to get into some of the, the mythology and folklore of disembodied heads. That's right. So at the end of the last episode, we were talking about the theft of the skull of the Austrian classical composer Franz Joseph Haydn, uh, which was stolen by phrenologists who clung to the mistaken belief that Haydn's musical genius would somehow be inscribed in the bone of his cranium. But Haydn isn't the only figure like this. There, there are other figures in history with some kind of reputation for genius of one kind or another, who have had their heads or their brains stolen in the hope that these remnants would somehow explain to science what made them so smart. And, of course, in the case of uh, phrenology, this was an utterly hopeless endeavor, uh, just because phrenology is is total quack pseudoscience end-to-end. But this has also happened even in ages of more legitimate neuroscience and still maybe doesn't tell us as much as the people who stole these brains hoped that it would. Uh, So I want to talk about another famous stolen head that is not even for any pretense of neuroscience or any other type of research. I want to talk about the head of Jeremy Bentham. Uh, So you might know Jeremy Bentham best for, I don't know, what do people know him best for these days? Maybe for the, for the idea of the Panopticon, which he was a a promoter of. That Uh, that would be where our listeners might've heard his name on this show before. Yeah. Jeremy Bentham was a highly influential 18th and 19th century philosopher and social reformer from England. And he's usually thought of as one of the founders of liberalism and one of the modern founders of the utilitarian theory of ethics. So in other words, uh, right and wrong would be determined not by what the king says or what the Bible says or not by any uh, deontological duty, but by what course of action would provide the greatest happiness to the greatest number of people. And Bentham is kind of interesting because if you read through a collection of his opinions and arguments today, it is this strange mixture of things that for the time were extremely radical, progressive, and by our you know modern ethics, admirable, uh, but also things that are bizarrely horrifying. So <laughs> – so, uh, for example, he, you know, he was in favor of total political equality for women and the decriminalization of homosexuality. But he also did not like the idea of privacy. He thought that was a bad concept. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course, this is exemplified in the idea of the panopticon in which uh, prisoners have no privacy or and and do not know if if, if the the gaze of the like the the lone uh, observation uh, tower if they are looking at them in any given moment you know uh, right so he would dig where we are now in some respects right <laughs> right oh my god Jeremy Bentham I, I would love to know Jeremy Bentham's thoughts on the modern digital landscape yeah. Uh, but anyway, the, the relevant part of the Jeremy Bentham story today is that his head still exists today above ground in a grotesque, incompetently mummified form. <laughs> and 
and it keeps getting stolen. Uh, I was reading a piece about this that was a, a transcript of a 2017 CBC radio piece, which featured an interview with uh, Subhadra Das, who's a curator of collections at University College London. The interviewer was named Carol Off. And this CBC piece includes some excellent biographical tidbits right at the top about Bentham's weird and interesting personality, apart from his politics and his public work. For example, it says that Bentham had a walking stick that he called Dapple. He had a teapot that he referred to as Dicky, and he had an elderly cat that was named the Reverend Sir John Langbourne. Oh, that's that's I don't know if that's a good cat name. That's a bit, no? a bit too human. I think it's funny when a dog has a very human name. I, I haven't made my mind up about cats yet. I think I guess I assume that's funny. I, I find that cats work best when they have food names, you know. Oh, OK. Yeah. yeah. Like, like biscuit or mochi or uh, pound cake or, um, you know, really anything. Ravioli. I mean, you, mm-hmm. you, can, you can go go crazy with it. But, but generally shock. speaking, yes, yeah. yeah, so <laughs> something kind of cute and foodsy works well with cats, I find. I'm glad that we've all learned that one day you plan to eat a cat. <laughs> well, I mean, it would the really if, if that were the case, and it's not, then we would the feeling would be mutual between me and the cat. So That's I think true. the cat would respect it. Oh yeah, like, if we were game small appreciating enough, they, game, is that what they say? Yeah, it, totally. If we were small enough, our cats would eat us. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I, I thought that was a pretty good window into his personality, and uh, and so Bentham apparently had express wishes for what would be done to his remains in the event of his death. And they fall along some similar lines of sensibility. Uh, So Bentham died in 1832. And when that happened, he wanted his dead body to be preserved in a way that would allow him to be wheeled out and presented to friends at parties in case anybody missed seeing him. Take Rob, I want you to take what I just said and compare that to the picture of his preserved head above. Well, you know, um, it certainly would be a conversation starter or stopper at any party. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, it's pretty impressive looking. It is identifiable as a head, even his head. Uh, it kind of looks, it has a very leathery consistency to it. Um, mm-hmm. The skin is you know, kind of darkened and kind of looks like a Slim Jim uh, with yes, these reddish very patches. Slim Jim, yeah. There's hair on it, uh, which I'm guessing is perhaps his original hair. Real hair, yep. The eyes uh, clearly are not his original eyes. It appears to be a pair of glass eyeballs that have been inserted into it, which give it this extra uncanny appearance because it looks like, you know, the living dead. It, lo- it looks like the eyes of a, of a, of a lich <laughs> staring yeah. at you. But the, the look on his face is also not terrifying. It's more serene. It looks like he's patiently listening to you while you're sharing a tidbit. Oh, I don't know how serene it. I mean, I guess I kind of see what you're saying, but he looks to me very like startled and appalled. He looks like a, a a butler who has accidentally opened a door to a room in which something obscene is taking place. Oh, well, I get more of a like he's patiently listening to you while you tell him something that he personally finds boring. But, okay. but he's a good listener nonetheless. <laughs> Okay, so what was the deal with his head? Like, why is his head off of his dead body, uh, but they're both preserved? Why does it look like that? Uh, To quote from Doss in this interview, she says, Bentham had made a special request that his head be preserved in the style of the Maori, the native New Zealanders. But his friend, Dr. Southwood Smith, who was tasked with creating the auto icon, wasn't necessarily as practiced with that as he probably would have liked to have been. (laughs) (laughs) 
And Das goes on, and so the result was a head that Southwood Smith said was not suitable for display, which is why he had a wax model commissioned. That's the one on display with the auto icon, which is the skeleton in Bentham's own clothes. So uh, so according to Das, the, the head was desiccated here with sulfuric acid, and sometimes his hair still falls out. But the situation is that there are two separate necro-icons of this utilitarian philosopher that are both made out of his real body. There's his body containing his bones and his clothes topped with a fake wax head, and that's on display at University College London. And Rob, I've got an image for you to look at down below here. Um, And then you also have his severed head, poorly preserved, that we just described, sometimes kept separately, sometimes shown at the feet of the auto icon of the rest of the body, because it's just this disgusting, rotten-looking beef jerky head. (laughs) And then, of course, there's the horrible body with a wax head that has these gloves on it that look really just – this is awful. Yeah, the picture you shared that shows the the wax-headed figure with an actual skeleton inside of it, uh, seated, and then there it is, at its feet, indeed, is the original head. And um, yeah, it, this looks fairly terrifying, but also symbolically potent. Uh, maybe it's just because of the <laughs> some of the examples that I was looking at from, say, Hindu iconography that we'll get into later. Like there, I feel like this image is trying to tell me something about about death. <laughs> yeah, it seems almost in the style of the the cephalophore saint, you know, like the mm-hmm. saints like Saint-Denis in Paris, uh, the saints who carry their own heads in their hands because of the legends where they were decapitated but then just picked up their heads and walked around did some miracles or something. Yeah, except he's like saying, yeah, it's like look, there's my head down there, it's rotten, but I'm I'm one. Look at this gorgeous <laughs> wax head I'm boasting. So the story gets weirder because we got to get to the actual theft. This was all yes. according to to Bentham's wishes, though the mummification or preservation of the head got screwed up. Southwood Smith did not do a good job with that, uh, or at least not to his own liking. And I don't know. The results don't look great. But then the theft comes in because apparently Jeremy Bentham's actual preserved head has been repeatedly stolen or kidnapped as a result of student pranks uh, like – uh, Doss points out that sometime in the 1990s, Bentham's head was, quote, kidnapped by UCL's rival university, King's College in London. Uh, so I assume it was stolen by some kind of English version of Jim Majalewski from the brain, you know, a, a, yeah. a, a prank boy. And in fact, it seems the head was stolen multiple times in its history. I was reading a, a piece about this uh, from Smith Journal that says, quote, once it was returned upon the making of a charitable donation. On another occasion, it was recovered from a luggage locker in Aberdeen. A man as clever as Bentham should have been able to foresee the inevitable consequences of spending eternity among students. <laughs> now, at some point, the head was recovered from what happened in the 90s, uh, these mischievous students, and it was put back on display at least at one point for an exhibit called What Does It Mean to Be Human? Curating Heads at UCL. Okay. So this is a head that apparently keeps getting stolen. Don't know if it'll ever be stolen again. I think they are taking extreme measures to prevent that, but who knows what's going to happen. But we should still say that, at least in Bentham's case, this is consensual preservation in a museum, despite a few uh, uh, encephalocleptes over the years. There are also lots of disturbing cases 
where someone's head or brain ends up in a museum against their own wishes, uh, whether it's uh, by the, the supposed forces of science and preservation or some other forces that are doing the stealing. It, it has happened plenty of times that heads, skulls, brains get taken from somebody's body, whether they wanted that or not, and end up in a museum. And and this brings me to the next thing I wanted to talk about to follow up on some of the uh, some of the phrenology discussion from the last episode because uh, I feel like I want to be a bit self critical here because I have to note that I feel a baseline sympathy for the classic Indiana Jones line about the cross of Coronado in the Last Crusade when he says mm-hmm. it belongs in a museum. You know, I I really enjoy museums and I am instinctually drawn to the idea that it's good to have artifacts preserved in places like museums, places where, you know, artifacts from history should be the, you know, the the common heritage of all humankind to observe and learn from. And so it's good that you get to go see them in a museum in a place where they will be preserved as well as possible across time. And this sounds good, but of course it can in reality be an extremely fraught concept, you know, just one of the million complications. Uh, We explore some of this in our invention episode on the first museum is the question of physical location. Like, I think it is actually good that artifacts from ancient history or even more recent history could in some way be the the common heritage of all humankind to learn from, but they've got to physically be somewhere. And it turns out that is often in like wealthy European nations or in the United States. So like not everybody actually has the same access to these artifacts. You know, you've got to physically go to London or to Washington or something to see them. Yeah, you have this this um, this this severe imbalance where, say, school children in the United States can go to their local museum in a major city and see artifacts of ancient Egypt, but those same artifacts are not on display at the local museum for actual Egyptian children to see. Yeah. They would have to look at a reproduction or a picture uh, in a book or on the internet. Right. And of course, another big problem here is just the question of like, how do you source these artifacts when you're you're bringing them into museum collections? A lot of times it's hard to make a convincing argument that, that what's happening in the collection of these artifacts is not just stealing, is just stealing from dead people. Mm-hmm. And so I think that there are real dilemmas here. I say this as as a lover of museums. Uh, and of course, it, it's true even of inanimate artifacts that are produced by people who are long gone. But it's obviously even more fraught when you're talking about things like the remains of human beings, especially human beings who lived relatively recently. Uh, and, and so this brings me back to what we were talking about in the Haydn segment of part one. We were talking about the development of the pseudoscience of phrenology, which quick refresher, this was a, a now completely debunked uh, pseudoscience that was popular, especially in like the first half of the 19th century, popular throughout Europe and the United States. And it was the belief that you could infer mental characteristics of people by measuring bumps and contours on their skulls. And this is one of the, this was one of the motiv- motivations for the stealing of the uh, Franz Joseph Haydn's skull. Now, there are some strains of phrenology that a person could see as extremely wrong and and pseudoscientific, but not super harmful, or at least not more harmful than a belief in like palm reading or something. You know, I'm just feeling around on your head and uh, doing doing a little personality test for you. Right. It's not accurate. (laughs) There's no science to it, but it's it's ultimately, I guess, harmless. Right. Right. I mean, I mean, I guess all pseudoscience in a way is 
potentially harmful, but it's not it's not as harmful as the other stuff we're about to talk to, because right. there are these other strains and in incarnations of phrenology and other types of, of pseudoscience uh, that are that are just a straight up nightmare. Yeah, uh, sometimes forms of racist pseudoscience aimed at like proving that people with different skin colors uh, were, were a result of separate acts of divine creation. So they're not even really all the same kind of human. Uh, also weird ideas, crackpot cranial criminology. Um, I didn't mean to be so alliterative there. Uh, but in, in the 19th century, especially, it was very common for proponents of phrenology and other types of craniometry. So uh, craniometry would be a any kind of a belief system based on the measurements of the skull, not necessarily like bumps, like phrenology, but uh, th there were other people who just tried to collect a bunch of skulls and measure them and draw inferences. Uh, so, so there were these things going on and, and they would cause people to gather these huge collections of human skulls, supposedly to form the raw materials for their research. But I was reading about this in that same book I mentioned in the previous episode, the one by Francis Larson called Severed, which uh, the, this whole chapter is really, uh, really horrifying and, and fascinating. Uh, it would lead these people to gather these big collections of skulls that in practice, it seems to me these collections were often just as much a sort of personal museum exhibit or a morbid curio collection to impress guests and wealthy benefactors as they were even a failed attempt to actually gather data. And unfortunately, it seems like most of these skulls collected for supposed craniometric research in the 1800s were not donated consensually. You can probably imagine where a lot of them came from. A lot of them were stolen from graveyards and battlefields. Some came from prisons and morgues, hospitals, workhouses, burial grounds, without the consultation of the owner or their family, and often without even knowing who the person had actually been. And as you might guess, the less wealth and power the person had, the more likely that their skull might be stolen after their death. Uh, many came from cemeteries of enslaved people in America. There are horrific details about the harvesting of skulls from Native American peoples during the, the wars of expansion of the U.S. frontier into tribal lands. And many came from uh, just from poor people, from workhouses and potter's fields. Larson has a whole chapter about this horrible episode in, in history in her book Severed. Um, but uh, a couple of these notorious skull collectors she mentions are the English doctor Joseph Barnard Davis and the American uh, physician Samuel George Morton. Both were mainly working in the early to mid-19th century. And she tells one anecdote about uh, Barnard Davis that I wanted to read here. Uh, so she says, quote, as a physician, Barnard Davis showed few qualms when it came to head collecting. John Beddo, a fellow doctor, remembered that he looked on heads simply as potential skulls. Beddo recounted introducing Barnard Davis during his rounds at the hospital to one of his patients, a sailor from Dubrovnik, who had nearly drowned and was being cared for at the Bristol Royal Infirmary. Beddo was treating the man for gangrene on the lung. Barnard Davis's curiosity was immediately piqued. Now, he said to Beto, you know that man can't recover. Do take care to secure his head for me when he dies, for I have no cranium from that neighborhood. Uh, as he was talking about the, the neighborhood of Dubrovnik. And uh, then uh, Larson goes on. Luckily for the sailor, Barnard Davis had been too enthusiastic in his diagnosis. The patient made a full recovery. And to Beto's amused relief, he carried his head on his own shoulders back to Herzegovina. Uh, and so she says, like, this is this is the reality of what's often going on in skull collecting. It's like 
basically totally ignoring the humanity of human beings and just being like, how am I going to get that skull? It's like a like a cartoon where uh, one cartoon character looks at the other and just sees like food as a you, cannibalistic frenzy takes over. Except oh my just God. seeing the skull. Yeah, the Looney Tunes where like they're in the lifeboat and like Donald Duck mm-hmm. looks at somebody and just imagines their body as like a like a drumstick or something. Yeah, it also reminds me of that line in T.S. Eliot's uh, Whispers of Immortality. Uh, Webster was much possessed by death and saw the skull beneath the skin. Oof. Now, it's also worth pointing out that the findings of these early craniometrists have not really held up to scientific scrutiny. Uh, Larson talks about this as well, all of the problems with their supposed research. Uh, they, a lot of them were trying to make generalizations about the mental qualities of large groups of people. Oh, you know, you can see because of this trend in the skulls of uh, people from this part of the world that they have these mental characteristics. And uh, this was all based on these skull measurements. But Their research was plagued by poor methodology, inconsistency in samples, inconsistency in measurements, fudging the data when it didn't fit, etc. Larson has a whole discussion on this. It seems like, once again, we're we're dealing with something that ultimately just amounted to bunk. Hmm. Though I wanted also to discuss a couple of points that she makes, which I thought were very useful in interpreting what was going on here historically. Uh, one interesting issue was if people are, are looking into you know these various questions, trying to understand the human mind, trying to understand culture, trying to understand mental processes, why the, the particular emphasis on skulls, like why the phrenology and craniometry craze as a very bone-focused thing to begin with, Well, she talks about how the physical characteristics of skulls just happen to lend themselves quite well to the practical applications and interests of the people who were in these fields. Uh, So she writes, quote, one Victorian physician, James Aitken Miggs, noted that skulls are easily prepared and preserved, may be conveniently handled and surveyed, considered in various points of view and compared to each other. Skulls are favorable specimens because they are small, hard, and robust. They are more compact than whole skeletons, which means that they can be relatively easily transported, and they're more durable than the messy tissues they contain, surviving for centuries on a museum shelf. They're surprisingly resistant to pressure, partly because of their shape, but also because the skull, unlike long bones, has no marrow. And skulls were thought to be the most characteristic part of the human body because there were so many ways in which one could be different from another. Full of nooks and crannies and holes and lumps, they were a statistician's dream. So this seems like one of those cases of people who thought they were doing scientific research but may well have been letting their theories be overdetermined by attraction to the specific practical and aesthetic aspects of objects that they just wanted to study, maybe because it was kind of attractive to have a collection of these in your house that you could show off to people, maybe because they were easy to move around from place to place and store, and much more so, of course, than actual brains themselves, which would quickly rot and all all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, skulls are really cool. I mean, there's no denying it. Um, They're neat. Uh, You know, it's fun to draw skulls. It's fun to look at pictures and photos and illustrations of skulls. Skull iconography in just pretty much every culture on Earth is is instantly captivating. Uh, And then, yeah, you can see where someone might be like, all right, let's I'm going to lean into this. Skulls are my thing. Uh, I want to study the skull. What what kind of information can I glean from the skull? 
Yeah, you almost get the sense that this was um, – it was very cart before the horse. It was kind of mm-hmm. like uh, uh, skull collecting first, science second, and it turned out that the science was not even good science. Yeah. I mean, it just in, – inevitably, it brings us back to the um, – uh, you know the, the 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 scene from Hamlet where he's holding the skull and contemplating mm-hmm. uh, uh, mortality and impermanence and so forth. You know, I mean, it's just that that's what the skull is. It is such a a potent symbol of these just all these different ideas and concerns and anxieties we have about uh, impermanence. Yeah. Now, when it comes to brains specifically, I also want to talk about one uh, tragic case in history of, of brains being preserved for supposed scientific uses or by museums uh, without the consent of the person. And uh, so – and of course, this is something to consider in contrast to something like Bentham or, or like you know where, where somebody intentionally grants their head uh, to a museum or something. Uh, this is the story of a man known to history as Ishii. Uh, now, as, as told by Larson – Ishii was a Native American man who was captured while foraging near a slaughterhouse in Northern California in the year 1911. He was about 50 years old. He did not speak English, and he apparently at least had no living friends or relatives. And so he was taken to anthropologists at the University of California, Berkeley, who identified him as a member of the Yahi people, many of whom had been victims of genocide by the white settlers in Northern California. And uh, Ishii was not even really the man's name. Ishii was an identifier given to him by the anthropologist, which apparently meant man in the Yana language. That's the overarching language uh, to which the the Yahi people uh, belonged. But the man known as Ishii never revealed his real name due apparently to to a custom within his culture of not revealing your name to someone unless you are introduced by a member of your own people. So after he after he was captured, he was taken to the University of California Museum of Anthropology, where he lived for some time. Uh, he worked as a janitor, and anthropologists uh, did some research with him. They made recordings of him speaking and singing in his language. Uh, they, they they studied his language, studied him in other ways, and he passed away in 1916. And then I want to pick up quoting from Larson here. Quote. Ishii had expressly asked that his body not be subject to a postmortem. One curator wrote in the days before Ishii's death, quote, science can go to hell. We propose to stand by our friends. He added, besides, I cannot believe that any scientific value is materially involved. The prime interest in his case would be of a morbid romantic nature. But his letter arrived too late. Staff at the museum who declared themselves Ishii's friends made, quote, a compromise between science and sentiment and performed an autopsy against his wishes. They removed his brain and sent it to the Smithsonian. Those who undertook the autopsy comforted themselves that it had been minimally invasive and certainly not as disrespectful as a dissection. His brain, after all, was preserved rather than destroyed. The rest of Ishii's body, which was kept whole, was cremated in a California cemetery. Thus, the autopsy was seen as a compromise despite the fact that it went against the dead man's wishes. And uh, Larson goes on to say that uh, Ishii's body was divided after death just as his identity had been in life. He was both a man and a scientific specimen. Like so many others, he had supposedly been, quote, the last of his tribe and was apparently without living relatives and was considered too, quote, valuable to lose in death. And I feel like this story is such an important reminder that 
even if what you're doing is real science and not phrenology or something, you can't ever let yourself start thinking about human beings as information first. I mean, the the situation she's describing here is that there were scientists who were saying like, oh, but it's just – it would just be too valuable uh, to you know, to study his brain. There's too much we can learn from it. Uh, but I mean, he didn't want this to happen. And so you you got to remember to think of people as people first and only once they say, OK, I am willing to have my my body somehow translated into information for science that you can proceed down that road. It's the basis of the concept of informed consent, which is so important in scientific research today. Plus, I feel like, it, you know, certainly from our perspective, the case was not very strong for we must preserve this brain. We must study this brain. Well, I mean, no, as as one of the, the people who worked with you, she said, you know, uh, that it's pr- probably more a case of motivation by mere morbid curiosity. Yeah. With also, I'm sure, quite racist undertones. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's not like they were trying to solve a crime. It's not like they were trying to understand the ravages of a particular disease, mm-hmm. et cetera. Yeah. It, it seemed based almost entirely in just morbid interest. Fortunately, there is a, a better conclusion to this story. So uh, I was reading a, a San Francisco Chronicle article by Kevin Fagan from the year 2000 that was about the uh, the reunification of, uh, of Ishii's remains. So Fagan here writes, quote, Sometime today, a jet is scheduled to land in California carrying a band of Ishii's descendants, and with them will be the long-lost final piece of their ancestor, Ishii's brain. Leaders of the Redding Rancheria and Pitt River tribes, which trace their bloodlines to Ishii's extinct Yahi nation through the Yana tribe, promise to never reveal where they buried him. They're not saying when they will do it either, just that they're landing in California today and that they want to be left alone to shepherd their departed elder spirit away in peace. So obviously it's good to hear that that happened, but it only follows, you know, what had already happened and could not be undone. And it makes you – I mean, again, it brings me back to this question about like um, how, do you, how do you manage the sort of scientific and preservation impulse, the, the it belongs in a museum impulse against questions where maybe it's not as clear. Like it, it's clear that this should not that, – that Ishii's brain should not have been removed because he was alive. You got to hear him say, no, I don't want this. Um, I, I guess the, the tougher question is in cases of like – what what about the remains of people who have been dead for a longer time and you know could not be consulted on the question of whether they would be interested in being uh, the subject of scientific research or not? And I genuinely don't know the answer there. Yeah, I, I do like how the story ended with the brain being returned into tribal privacy. You know, mm-hmm. like uh, and and I feel like that detail in and of itself that that, that lines up with a lot of of different. Uh, you know, things we're seeing regarding not only like actual artifacts, uh, but also just like traditions and, and information. Um, I did a I, I did a, a, an article last year for House of Works about uh, the Skinwalker. They wanted an article about the, the Navajo tradition of the Skinwalker, and like that was one of the things I, I that really was driven home for me in researching that is like that there are there are, are certain you know aspects of 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 living tradition that you know it's 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 disrespectful to 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 you know to act on this desire to collect it all and to and to keep it all and to codify it and to put it on a shelf uh that some things you know still belong to the people who created them and you know they can share them if they want to you know mm-hmm. 
uh, so yeah, I, I can't help but be reminded of that with this uh, the story of of this this piece of this uh, individual finally being returned uh, to his people, and in doing so, it kind of passes out of uh, of the broader like media view. Right, that you're not going to be like taking TV cameras to his gravesite or yeah uh, that kind of thing. Yeah, because that would just be a continuation of the same sort of energy that he he seemed very outspoken against. Well, now that we've talked a good bit about the foibles and horrors of relatively recent uh, skull, head, and brain theft, uh, what do you say we go back into some uh, some more deeper history and mythology? Yeah, yeah, because again, you know, the, the skull, the head, uh, you know, these are certainly long-standing icons. Uh, they've been focal points for myth-making and dreaming and, and anxiety, you know, throughout all of human existence and it's, it's it's only relatively recent that we've been able to focus more on the brain as an icon you know mm-hmm. um you know like if you ever encounter a, a ghost uh movie that has like a brain-based ghost it's a little off uh, off-putting right because it doesn't seem like the ghost should be associated with the brain the brain seems more of a science fiction quality as opposed to something that is more supernatural in nature mm-hmm uh, so, yeah, I, I guess to begin with, we should point out that folks have been taking heads for longer than they have had any, any certainly any understanding of the brains rattling around inside them. Uh, and we don't even have to get into all the gory details because you know the sort of things we're talking about. You know, heads hewn off in battles, heads mounted on poles and pikes, lobbed with a catapult, skulls lined up on the on shelves in catacombs, that sort of thing. And we're also never, in some cases, we're not 100% sure, you know, when we're dealing with something where it's, okay, is this head a trophy? Is this some sort, or is this some, some sort of like sacred funerary tradition or something in between? A lot of times we have to sort of piece together what it actually meant. So uh, one uh, example I was looking at from the ancient world, and this is this is not so much myth here. This is actual, like, you know, actual um, um, archaeological evidence. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I was uh, reading uh, ritual use of trophy heads in ancient um, Nazca society, and this was by Donald A. Prue, published in uh, Ritual Sacrifice in Ancient Peru in 2001. So the taking of heads for ritual use has a long history in the central Andes uh, from uh, the, the pre-ceramic period prior to about 1800 BCE and continuing through Inca times. And with the Nazca, the craftspeople uh, you know, responsible for the Nazca lines, uh, these were created between 500 BCE and 500 CE. With the Nazca, uh, they also engaged in the taking of heads. And we see it represented in their rich textile art, depicting warriors, shamans, mythical beings in some cases, with human heads often on their cloaks or in their hands. And according to Prue, over 100 examples remain of the Nazca mummified heads, which were, the, which were first removed from the body, apparently, with an obsidian knife. And then a hole would have been punched through the base of the skull using a club or some sort of a, a tool. And then the brain and the eyes were removed through that opening. But then another hole, a smaller hole, was punched or drilled through the forehead. And this was a, a, in, apparently in order to allow a, a carrying rope to be secured. Mm. The lips were pinned with thorns and cloth was stuffed into the skull. And so you have a preserved skull at this point. So you said these were believed to be for ritual use. Was the thought that they would be like displayed somewhere or that they would be like carried in a ceremony? This is where it all gets really uh, interesting. And this is where the, where a lot of authors have, have uh, 
uh, and a lot of scientists have have really uh, chimed in with different views. But you know, it, it looks it's easy to look at something like this and think of it just as trophy taking, right? Like a, the, just the trophy taking of a warlike people. And indeed, war was an important part of their culture. But the reality seems to have been ultimately far more complicated. Uh, substitute head jars were sometimes were found to be buried with the bodies. And the actual heads were not merely symbols of victory, but they were used in uh, schematic rituals, perhaps entailing hallucinogenics as a means of communing with the spirit realm and, uh, according to Prue, quote, propagating and controlling the forces of nature, especially so far as natural resources are concerned. Now, apparently some have argued that these were, were not trophy heads, but the heads of honored ancestors, but Pro dis- disputes this. He, de- he defines them instead as, quote, trophies of warfare collected for ritual purposes. So that, that's, that's interesting because it seems to, I, th- I think to a lot of modern minds, it, it tends to be, a, it seems, sounds like a mashup of two different ideas. Like you're taking the head of your, your enemy off of their dead body, but isn't? But you're probably doing that as like a trophy or a sign of disrespect. You know, we, we often think of that. Um, I think of the Key and Peel skit where uh, one like uh, tr- tr- barbarian beheads another, mm-hmm. and then goes through all these various uh, sort of comedic acts with the head to see yeah. what how the rest of the tribe responds. I know that skit. Does it, what does he do? He uh, he like puts little uh, shoes under it and makes it walk. Yeah, and like yeah. that's that's a, a big hit. But he also like does things like pretend to give birth to the head, and like that just People, doesn't. They don't, they don't like, like it. it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's, it's a funny skit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it's the kind of thing where like when we think about head taking, we think of stuff like that. We think of like something barbaric and trophy oriented. But in this case, it seems like. It, it wasn't that, or it wasn't purely that. It was, the, it was also this idea of, well, you need this head. This head is necessary for various uh, religious purposes, a way of, of – a, a means of communing with the spirit realm. Um, now, as for the brain, it seems like the brain was, was discarded. That would have been – again, that would have been part of like that first act of, uh, of punching through the back of the skull to remove the eyes and the brain. Uh, probably going back to the reality we talked about before where the brain uh, rots rather, uh, rather quickly, and that's going to be one of the first things you're going to want to remove. Now, this also reminds me of the mummified heads of the, the Kokum dynasty of the Maya, which were kept and preserved because they were said to contain the voices of their ancestors. Again, a means of communicating with spirits and or the dead. This is interesting to compare, uh, to remember what we talked about in the first episode about the uh, the plastered heads of uh, Chattel Hoyuk in, in mm-hmm. southern Turkey, which, you know, from this uh, Stone Age settlement. There were often heads of ancestors that were kept in some kind of preserved form, apparently within the home. Yeah. And during the mid-first millennium BCE, there were, there were various accounts of the use of human heads in acts of, of, um, of communion, necromancy, divination uh, across the Mediterranean. We see it mentioned in the accounts of Herodotus and Aristotle. Um, uh, Cleomenes, of the first of Sparta, is said to have consulted with the head of his friend Archontides on all major decisions, a head which he kept preserved in honey. Whoa, in honey? Yeah. That's good. And so, uh, you know, of course, when we, we deal with accounts like this, we're we're beginning to at least beginning to transfer into the realm of myth and lore and legend, uh, where we be, we become less sure about what is actually going on, uh, because then there is this broader realm of just stories about uh, disembodied heads 
that still have life in them, that can speak, that can fly, that can terrorize, that can give uh, you know, important advice to the living, etc. I think one of the, the, the coolest of these that, uh, um, that folks may have heard of is, uh, is the myth of, of Mimir uh, in Norse mythology. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this Mimir was one of the, the Jotuns in Norse mythology, one of the frost giants, and he was the guardian of the well of inspiration and wisdom at the roots of the world tree. And Odin would come to, to drink from the well, and Mimir would make him leave an eye in payment. And uh, then Mimir was held hostage in, uh, in battle by the Vanir during the, uh, the Asur-Vanir War, and they beheaded him. But Odin, since he liked the guy, you know, retrieved his head and kept it alive with magic herbs so that the head could continue to give counsel to the king of the gods. And so you'll see uh, some wonderful uh, illustrations of this, both old and then recent, where there's like this some, – some cases it's like a zombie head that Odin uh, is, uh, is holding, that he is, uh, uh, that, that is his advisor. Yeah, you've attached one here where Odin is is leaning his head over on the severed head like he's almost kind of snuggling with it. Of course, Odin is missing one eye as usual and uh, and there's just fire coming out of the thing's mouth or I don't know. It looks like he's got like a star inside the back of his throat. Yes. <laughs> Um, in, in terms of, of heads that give advice like this, there's also uh, an Arabian Nights story uh, of, uh, of King Yunnan and the Dubin, and Dubin the sage. And the sage in question, at least in some variations of this tale, continues to speak after it has been removed from its body. Now, uh, I'm going to get into some other examples uh, uh, here uh, you know, of, 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 of disembodied heads, of decapitation in mythology that are that are pretty interesting. Uh, one that I found really fascinating is the self-decapitating uh, nude goddess of Hinduism uh, that is uh, that is known as uh, Chinamasta, and uh, that just means she's she whose head is severed. And she's typically depicted red-fleshed and holding a scimitar in one hand and her own head in the other as blood fountains from the stump of her neck, which in, in some cases is then consumed by her thirsty skeletal attendants. And then she is usually stand, depicted standing on top of a copulating human couple. Uh, so it's, it's an instantly... Um, captivating image. She's one of the 10 goddesses of the esoteric tradition of Tantra, and she's a slayer of demons. So she's a highly uh, symbolic deity. There's the sense of the transcendence of the body, free of the mind. You know, the body, the mind has literally been removed from the physical form. Uh, She's a symbol of sacrifice and ferocity. Yeah, this imagery is amazing. Yeah, it probably goes without saying, but this in particular, though this goes for a lot of Hindu iconography, this is an image that's caught the interest of various Westerners. So you'll sometimes see it depicted by Western artists or adopted by death metal bands, etc. Right. Man, the death metal bands, they just, they just snatch up everything cool. Yeah, yeah. If, if it's you know, it, it hits a certain vibe for them, they'll uh, they'll they'll take it. Uh, so there, there are at least a couple of of speaking heads associated with tellings and retellings of the Mahabharata, uh, the the Hindu epic. Heads placed on poles after being sacrificed or having their bodies sacrificed in order to watch the battle. And uh, I was reading a little bit about this from author and uh, mythologist uh, Devdut uh, uh, Pananik, who has a whole page about these tales at his mythology website, uh, Dev. Dude.com. That's D-E-V-D-U-T-T dot com. Uh, he, he writes that these tales are often about perspective. Quote, 
The talking head is thus a symbol for a less confined, more global perspective on things. All of us see the world from our individual point of view, limited by our prejudices, our expectations, and our experiences. The talking head sees it from an alternative angle. And when he voices his opinions, we see the world quite differently. When he speaks, we realize the Pandavas and the Karavas are are tiny elements of God's greater canvas. The Mahabharata is not just about one kingdom. It is about cosmos. Order. Mm. Now, that's not to say there aren't just monster heads, too, in Hindu <laughs> iconography. Uh, there's a really cool example uh, named uh, Kurtamukha, or the, the head of glory, as it's often uh, referred to. And this is a monstrous flying head in Hindu mythology that seems to be similar in, in many ways to the Gorgonian head of the Greek tradition that we discussed in our Medusa episodes. So uh, according to Carol Rose, uh, the, the, um, the folklorist, uh, when Shiva was told that he was unworthy of marrying Parvati, in his rage, he experiences such rage that a monstrous lion springs from his head. And then it attacks Shiva, and he commands it, no, we're not doing that, uh, <laughs> eat yourself instead. And so this monster consumes its own body, leaving only its entrails, which then turn to pearls. And so that leaves only the head. So Shiva then commands uh, Kurtamukha to serve as the guardian of entrances. And so you see this head, this head of glory uh, in, um, you know, above the door or around the door of, uh, in, uh, in many different um, examples of, of Hindu architecture uh, from India and from other countries. Wow. You know, this is interesting because you brought it up and I somehow did not think about it. But from Greek mythology, you know, we did the episode last year about uh, about Medusa. That's, of course, a case of a stolen head in yeah. mythology. The The head is severed and like he takes it and uses it as a tool. Yeah, it becomes a, a, a weapon, not so much a yeah, means of communicating with anything, but a, but this, this weapon, this symbol. Mm-hmm. And, and, and here we see another tradition. Uh, now, I've not read anything that, that links the two in any respect, you know, to say that like one inspired the other or anything of that nature. But clearly, they're getting at similar ideas, the idea of this, um, this terrifying head uh, and or face that stares out from a work. As a, as a way of warning those who would, uh, who would trespass. Yeah. Now, I should note that, that uh, looking around, though, sometimes it appears to have arms. So I don't know hmm. if it, it gains arms later or if arms just end up popping back up in the iconography. But there you go. Um, another entity we've talked about before on the show is Rahu in Hindu, Hinduism, the uh, eclipse entity. Uh, you know, this is the, you know, once was a proud Asherah, demigod of immense power and hunger and seeking immortality. It drinks the divine nectar. But before this drop can pass his throat, he's swallowing it mid-swallow. Uh, Vishnu decapitates him for his transgression. And, uh, yeah, and this ends up uh, translating into this um, this eclipse mythology where the head of Rahu attempts to consume the sun or does consume the sun, but then it passes out of the next stump. I think we talked about this in one of the first episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind I ever did, the, the one on the eclipse. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, another example is uh, uh, Bron the Blessed in Welsh mythology, the giant king who mortally wounded in battle had his followers cut off his head so that it could be returned to Britain one day. And for a long time, this head was said to speak before it grew silent. And the story goes that the silent head was finally taken to White Hill. Uh, uh, This is where the Tower of London, they say, would one day be built. And they buried it there, facing France to ward off the enemy. (laughs) 
And this supposedly ties into the, uh, the, uh, the, the Celtic cult of, of the head, also reflected in the tale of the Green Knight. Ah, we're in the, in the Green Knight. Uh, the Green Knight comes into Arthur's court and challenges someone to cut off his head. But then when they do, he just picks it up and he's like, no, I'm fine. Now I get to cut off your head, but I'll do it a year from now. Yeah, the, the decapitation battle is another yeah, motif uh, or contest. You see that uh, in a lot of legends from this part of the world. And it's interesting, you know, um, uh, Terry Jones of Monty Python, mm-hmm. of course, was very steeped in, uh, in, in this sort of lore. Mm-hmm. And he was one of the author, uh, one of the, the, the writers for the screenplay for Labyrinth. And Labyrinth features those wonderful um, fiery red creatures that attempt to engage in a decapitation contest with our, our heroine, uh, Sarah. Mm-hmm. You remember them where they're like, uh, where they get mad at her because you're only you're not supposed to take someone else's head. You're only <laughs> supposed to take your own head off. Uh, oh, this this reminds me of uh, of uh, the head swapping scene in Teens in the Universe. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, this sort of thing, head swapping, decapitated heads living on. You see it just everywhere. Um, for instance, here here are some other examples uh, in in Maya mythology. You have Head Apu who is tricked by the lords of the underworld. And his decapitated head was then hung as a trophy from a giant tree. But then this head later spits into a woman's hand and in doing so impregnates her with the Maya hero twins who would go on to have various adventures. Hmm. We've already touched on uh, in the previous episode, we touched on Orpheus's singing head in Greek mythology. Oh, yeah. And the possible symbolic connection to the box made for Haydn's skull with the lyre. Yeah. 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 Uh, in the trial of the Knights Templars, uh, one of the charges was that they worshipped an entity called Bahamut that was sometimes described as a severed head. And then, uh, oh, you have some wonderful monsters as well. Um, there's the uh, Karasu in uh, Southeast Asia. It's a Southeast Asian spirit that takes the form of a beautiful woman's head with her organs dangling below her neck. So it floats, it glows, and it seems to essentially be another variation of the Will-O-The-Wisp tradition uh, that is, is held around the world and that we devoted a, a big episode to in the past. Mm-hmm. So she kind of, what, she like glows and leads people off the path? I believe so, yes. Um, and there's, there's actually a 1981 Indonesian horror movie titled Mystics in Bali that looks pretty interesting because it features a Karasu. Uh, I included a screenshot here for you, Joe, and for and a movie trailer for you to check out later. Oh, yeah, I gotta, gotta see that. That looks great. Now, the melee version of this is the, uh, the Pontianic, which functions like a vampire, only it preys exclusively on babies and infants. Then there's also the Japanese uh, uh, nukikubi, which is a type of yokai in Japanese traditions. It's humanoid in form, but it can separate its head from its body, and this can float free to work mischief. It's just one of one of various examples of disembodied heads that you'll find in Japanese lore. Mm. And then in um, uh, the native peoples of uh, the Americas, you find some other uh, interesting uh, traditions as well. Uh, the flying head of the Iroquois and the uh, the Wandat mythology. This is a, a great flying head, sometimes with bat wings on each side of its head, with long hair and terrible eyes. Uh, Carol Rose writes about these in uh, her book on, um, on monsters. Uh, uh, she says that this was an entire class of monsters in the folklore of the Iroquois. Huge, ugly heads with eyes of fire, dripping fangs, and huge wings instead of ears. They fly through storm winds with wild hair, uh, you know, helping to keep them afloat and kind of floating around them. They prey on villagers and animals alike, and their teeth are like... It sounds like they were kind of like uh, like a cage. If mm. their if their teeth or their jaws 
clouds close over you. There's no escape. But there's a tale, apparently, of an old woman who is roasting some chestnuts over the fire. And then she brings a fiery coal back from the fire with her to keep her warm. And then here comes uh, the, the flying head, and it, uh, it gobbles her up. Uh, chestnuts and all, but then it has to spit her out because of the fiery coal, and then that coal burns the monster up from the inside out. Oh, I love when a story has a trick like that. Yeah, especially when it's like an old lady who gets the, the gets the the win over the monster. Oh that's, yeah, that's always nice. Like, uh, not not your traditional young dashing male slayer. Yeah. So so that's just an example of some of the the myths and legends and and folkloric tales you'll find just throughout the world. I, I know there's some wonderful ones that I didn't touch on, and certainly I'd love to hear from anyone out there. If you have a really good one, if you have a favorite, uh, we would love to to hear it and then potentially share it back with everybody else in a listener mail episode. But I, I think just this selection gives you a, a certain taste of what out what's out there. You know these various imaginative contemplations on like what happens if the head lives and the body dies what happens if the body decapitates itself like there's just it's just such rich grounds for contemplation regarding identity and mortality and just so much it seems like a lot of times disembodied heads are are angry yeah well you know a lot of times i guess they do have something to to be angry about but but then sometimes they're jovial um Mm -hmm. You know, there's the, the some of those examples from the from tellings of the Mahabharata. I was reading like they're laughing, like they're laughter. There's one where I think their laughter distracts Arjuna during the battle. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and there's a sense of like being free from the body. Um, uh, I'm, I'm also reminded of the the heads that show up in Miyazaki Spirited Away. Ooh. Uh, the three heads that kind of roll around and bumble, and they don't have much personality to them, and. I I don't really know what they're doing and what they're there for, but they don't seem distressed. They seem maybe perpetually alarmed, but uh, that's about it. That's good stuff. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and uh, close this episode out. But yeah, we'd love to hear from everybody out there. Any any other examples of uh, flying heads and self-decapitating spirits? Uh, other examples of brain and head preservation? Have you been taken by a particular specimen of brain or head at a museum? We would love to hear from you all about it. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, And wherever that happens to be, we just ask that you rate, review, and subscribe. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.